I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 64. I'm your host, Nicholas heaton Clark, and we have once again two stories for you this week. A bit of flash, and then a longer piece. So let's get to it, shall we? Our first piece today is a delightful flash called Frankenstein's Monster by Malcolm Chandler. Mr. Chandler's fiction has appeared on Everyday Fiction, Hackwriters.com, Bewildering Stories, and elsewhere. His indie short, Vampire Brides from Planet Hell, is available on Amazon.com. He lives and writes in western Pennsylvania. It's read for us by our old friend Rish Outfield. Rish is a writer, actor and podcaster that can be heard as host of the Dune Steef Audio Fiction magazine, which presents genre stories with a full cast. He also performs audiobooks for Audible and occasionally becomes a wolf when the wolfsbane blooms and the moon is full and bright. So, get ready for Frankenstein's Monster by Malcolm Chandler. Frankenstein's Monster by Malcolm Chandler I want Mandy out of my head. They say the dream doctor is the man for the job. He is a small, hunched man of vaguely Central European origins. He wears small, rectangular glasses perched on the end of his nose. He is the timeless kind of withered man who could be seventy years old, or seven thousand. Her name again? he asks adjusting his glasses on the end of his nose. Mandy. Mandy, he repeats, pecking at a tablet with his crooked index fingers. Symptoms? I can't sleep without dreaming about her. It used to be one or two nights a year, then once a week. Now it's every night. Every night the same dream. Mandy on the beach with the wind teasing her straight black hair. Mandy smiling her thousand-watt smile, mocking me. Or maybe inviting me. Impossible to tell which. Each time I wake in a cold sweat, trembling. And each time Rachel is there beside me, asking about my nightmares. I have a wife, I explain. I love her to death. The dream doctor holds up a palsied, skeletal hand. Again, he adjusts his glasses. Cash or credit? He asks politely. Relax. Focus on your breathing. Relax. The treatment bot's eight utility appendages loom over me, 
as if it's the bastard offspring of an octopus and a needle exchange program. Its modulated, synthesized voice is so soothing, it is totally inhuman. The bot describes how it will administer light anesthesia, followed by things it calls helper nanites, and assures me treatment will be over in a few short minutes. You should expect to wake up in the recovery room. Now please continue to focus on your breathing. Relax. Then it's all buzzing, whirring, and the pointy ends of some very large syringes. Relax, the bot repeats. Focus on your breathing. Relax. Mandy stands on the beach, smiling. Far behind her, the sun is just beginning to dip below the horizon. A light wind teases her straight black hair. She is smiling her thousand-watt smile. A mocking smile. Or maybe inviting. Impossible to tell which. The sun turns blood red. Mandy smiles. The sun and the sky begin dissolving, as if they're made of celluloid catching fire and burning white-hot, a thousand suns going nova at once. Still, Mandy smiles. Blackness lurks behind the white light. Not just the color black, but living, seething blackness, undulating like an ocean. It devours the sunset, the ocean, the beach. Mandy keeps on smiling. No! Stop! Not a shout or scream. Not a voice. Not even a sound, really. Just words reverberating inside my mind. The living blackness eats everything. The sky, the sun, the beach. It eats Mandy from the edges on inward until the only thing left is a thousand-watt Cheshire Cat smile. Then it eats that, too. I wake on a lumpy mattress with the dream doctor standing over me, adjusting his glasses on the end of his nose. How are we feeling? he asks. Fine, I croak. Funny how people always answer fine, even if they really feel they're about to vomit their guts up or that someone's driven a dull railroad spike into their skull. Excellent, the dream doctor says. Then he hobbles away to check on someone else. The dream doesn't stop. It changes. Mandy stands on the beach, beneath a gunmetal sky. No more wind to tease her hair. The ocean is made of shattered glass. Only half of Mandy's smile remains. The rest of her face has been eaten down to the bone, leaving a ragged edge of skin peeling off the center of her forehead and the bridge of her nose, like a band-aid losing its stick. Same with her arms and legs. Bands of flesh droop off her delicate bone structure. They could be leftover scraps on barbecue ribs, still moist, still alive in their own peculiar way. Her right eye dangles from its socket, bobbing on the end of the nerve as if it's a fishing lure. Still pretty with makeup, you know. The words come from the good half of the Mandy Thing's smile. Still not sounds. They materialize like comic book call-outs, then dissolve back to nothing. The Mandy thing holds out its decaying arms, hungry to embrace me. I wake up sweating. Not only that, but screaming. There, there, Rachel says. It's just another nightmare. She holds me till I stop shaking. But the whole time she's soothing me. I'm thinking about drilling into my skull and ripping the Mandy thing out of my head with my bare hands. I don't deserve her sympathy. Not after building that secret beach fantasy in the depths of my brain. Not after visiting Mandy there in my subconscious every night when it should be Rachel I see in my dreams. Sweet, loving Rachel, whom I owe nothing but loyalty and affection. It's clear now Mandy will always be there waiting with her putrid arms outstretched whenever I drift off to sleep. 
just like I always wanted. Catches up to you, doesn't it? <laughs> oh well, moving on. Our long story today is "And Such Small Deer" by Chris Robeson. Chris is a New York Times best-selling writer, best known for the Eisner-nominated series *I Zombie*, co-created with artist Mike Allred, for multiple Cinderella miniseries set in the world of Bill Willingham's fables, his creator-owned series *Edison Rex* with artist Dennis Culver. And his work on Superman, Star Trek, Legion of Superheroes, and Elric: The Balance Lost, among others. He has written more than a dozen novels, three dozen short stories, and numerous comic projects. Chris and his wife Alison Baker are the co-publishers of Monkey Brain Comics, and the couple live with their daughter in Portland, Oregon. The story is read for you by Anthony Babington, who is a voice in the internet's head. He looks almost, but not quite. Exactly how you'd expect him to. He currently resides in Houston, Texas, but hastens to add that this was not his idea. He can be found on Google Plus. So, sit back, fablers, relax. Let's listen to, and such small deer, by Chris Robeson. Letter to Frederic Lern, student. Care of University of Paris, Sorbonne, July fifteen, eighteen sixty. Monsieur Lern, I am writing in regards to your recent correspondence on the inheritance of characteristics from one generation to another. I would like to thank you for your kind and insightful words, and I only wish that my recently published paper had been as well received here at home in England. Sadly, it was not, and I am forced temporarily to look beyond the arena of pure research for employment. Luckily, I have received an offer to practice medicine in the Dutch East Indies, and has only this past week accepted. Bidwi luminosua praesurionis in my bad schoolboy Latin. Brighter days ahead. F A M. Abraham van Helsing's journal, translated from the Dutch. First March, eighteen sixty-one, Belawan. After a journey of several days from the northern coast of Borneo. Past Singapore and through the Strait of Malacca, I arrived this morning at the newly built port of Balawan, in the North Sumatran province of Delhi. The region has only recently come under the colonial jurisdiction of my countrymen, so I had hoped to find some relative comfort in my brief stay here. The ship which makes the regular circuit between the Dutch East Indies and India, though, is not due to arrive for another week, and I am finding conditions less hospitable than I might have expected. I wonder now whether I might have been better off waiting in Sarawak for the next ship to England, but to do so would have meant another week in the company of the mad Raja Brook, and any deprivation is better than that. Carrying my small amount of luggage with me, nothing more than a valise and a small case, I left the rough docks behind and tried to find an inn in the town. To my disappointment, I found very little of note in the whole of Bilawan. The buildings all look as though they've been constructed in the last year. Some of them bare wood without stain, paint, or varnish, while the roads are newly made tracks of dirt running between. Besides a small port authority building and a warehouse for the storage of goods being sent and received by the dock, the only other structure of note in all of Belawan is a store of sorts, not very imposing, but needs must when the devil drives. I entered the store, hoping to find direction to accommodation and perhaps a bite to eat. The store was ramshackle, bare wooden floors and walls, and roughly hewn shelves piled high with haphazard goods, alcohol, cigars, salt, sugar, some items of clothing, sweet, and the like. Behind the counter was an ancient native man, while in a back corner, a European man in shirt sleeves rolled to his elbows was knelt down, bandaging the foot of a native man beside a broken crate. Before I'd had a chance to address the man behind the counter, my eyes fell on a package of Dutch chocolates perched high on a shelf. My mouth began immediately to salivate. I'd not seen any confections of that brand since I'd left Amsterdam early the year before, and the mere sight of them caught me in a brief wave of nostalgia. I remembered sharing them with my late wife early in our courtship, or seeing my young son eating them messily on a birthday outing. Whatever the price, I knew I would be willing to pay to recapture those moments, 
if only for a fleeting instant. As this is a Dutch colony, I hoped that the few bits of coin from home still rattling in the far reaches of my valise might be considered legal tender in the local economy. What is the price? I asked of the native man behind the counter, motioning to the chocolates on the shelf above his head. Fifteen, the man said simply, through tight lips, his face a perpetual scowl. I scratched my chin. Fifteen of what, if you don't mind? I asked. The ancient man didn't speak, just pointed a calloused finger at a sheet of paper lacquered to the countertop. On it was written, like some Rosetta Stone in miniature, a block of text repeated in several languages, one of them my native Dutch. It was a simple statement, informing the reader that this store was only for employees of the Netherlands Sumatra Company, and that the store didn't accept any currency besides the company script. My gaze lingering on the chocolates, I pressed on with business. In that case, I asked, Can you tell me if there is an inn in the near vicinity? The ancient man looked at me blankly. A place where one might hire a room. The ancient man took a deep breath through his wide nostrils and shook his head once, side to side. No, he said simply. Well, I went on, undeterred, can you tell me if there is a carriage to the nearest town that does have an inn? Again, the long pause, the deep intake of breath, and the single shake of the head. No. I was growing exasperated, not sure whether the native man failed to understand my Dutch and was only shamming responses, or understood and just wished to be unhelpful. But before I could say another word, a third party joined the stunted conversation. The European man who had been bandaging the native's foot at the rear of the store had looked up on first hearing the discussion between me and the man behind the counter, and finishing his ministrations, came forward into the light. He was a powerfully built man in his mid-thirties, with a fine forehead and rather heavy features, with a full, heavy mouth turned down at the corners, giving him an expression of pugnacious resolution. He was well-muscled, standing a good six feet in height, with an unkempt mess of dark hair sticking out above his ears, hanging down just below his collar at his neck. Van Helsing? he said, looking at my face intently, speaking English with a British accent, he added. Is that you? I was startled to be recognized, to say the very least. I had no notion who the man might be. I found in the misty reaches of my memory a dim recollection of the man's face, but nothing else. Yes, I said warily. And whom do I have the pleasure of addressing? The man brightened immediately and came forward, arms outstretched. Abraham, surely you remember your old friend? Have so many days passed since we haunted the halls of Oxford? The man seemed overjoyed at our unexpected reunion. For my part, I could barely remember ever having known the man, much less his name. I had vague memories of a lanky, obsessed creature who was always at the rear of the surgical amphitheater, always asking the strangest questions. What was his name again? I thought to myself. Something with an F sound. I began to form the initial consonant in my mouth, the first hiss of air escaping between my teeth, and the tall man rushed to complete the work for me. Francis! the man said, pounding his chest with a heavy fist and then taking me in his arms in an embrace not at all characteristic of the English. I knew you'd not have forgotten your bosom chum, Francis, even after the years and miles, old Abe. I sometimes think the past is a different country, I said, trying to extract myself from his embrace as diplomatically as possible. And besides, the wench is dead, the man called Francis answered, leering. Ah, Abe, remember our days together? Studying anatomy and chemistry, dreaming our grand dreams of the future, I had hopes to add a new star to the firmament, my name included in the list of luminaries in the sciences. He breathed a sentimental sigh, but continued before I could respond. Sadly, I've had to leave the field of pure research behind for the moment, and instead earn his crust of bread in the practice of medicine. I've come to the East to find work, but find there's little intellectual stimulation to be had, so much so that I've had to make my own diversions. Still, I'm eager for a receptive audience for my discussions, since so often here my talks fall on deaf ears. I explained that I, too, had come to the Orient for employment, but found it not to my liking, and am currently in the process of returning home to Europe. Francis, which is all he is to me still, as I cannot recollect his surname, continued on, talking in an animated fashion, as though we were just rejoining a conversation left dangling the night before.
and not more than a decade since. I have only vague memories of Francis from school, and can't call to mind a single discussion or meal we shared. But as he went on and on, I came to realize that the moment had passed when I could admit to forgetting his name. He remembers me, and assumes I remember him. I have no choice but to continue under the pretense that we are old friends reunited, and hope that someone utters his full name in my hearing before too long a span has passed. In any event, Francis said, I'm employed at a nearby plantation, and you simply must come and be my guest. Oh, well, I said, playing for time and trying to devise a suitable alternative. I am, of course, grateful for the offer, but I don't want to be any bother. If you can just direct me to the nearest inn, I'll be out of your hair. Francis shook with braying laughter, and clapped me hard on the shoulder with one of his massive hands. He explained that the nearest inn is in Medan, the capital city, fourteen miles away, but that there is no regular carriage service along that route. My only real option was to come with Francis back to the plantation. Having no choice, I accompanied Francis back to the rustic plantation house, and he showed me to the guest quarters. I've unpacked my valise and settled in as best as I can. The accommodations are somewhat rough, little more than a rickety chair, a low desk, a hard and narrow bed covered in a thin sheet, and a jug and bowl for washing up. I've heard about the wealth of the Dutch plantations in Java, but these are early days for the expansion of such cultivation into the northern regions of Sumatra, and such successes appear not yet to have followed. I am invited to dine this evening with the plantation's staff. I hope, at least, to hear at least one Dutch voice among them. I have been in the company of foreigners and mad Englishmen for too long, and could do with some familiar tones. Letter to Frederick Lerne, student, care of University of Paris, Sorbonne, August 30, 1860. I have only just arrived in the Dutch East Indies, and have been installed as staff physician at the Netherlands Sumatra Company's tobacco plantation in northern Sumatra. The plantation was only started earlier this year, and is roughly halfway up the road to Medan, capital of the province of Delhi. To call it a capital, though, is to slight capitals everywhere. It is a dusty village of a few hundred souls, and nothing more besides. The job is a meagre one, but I suppose I am lucky to have it, as it was only family connections that brought me this far. I have a French cousin on my father's side of the family who is in the region working as an overseer for the plantation, which is owned by a Dutch consortium. My cousin is penniless but styles himself the Baron de Maupertuis, laying claim to a hereditary title that held no cachet even before the storming of the Bastille, much less after the rousing cries of Liberté, Egalité, et Fraternité from the proletariat. My cousin invited me to the plantation to act physician on the staff. As I believe I mentioned in an earlier missive, I have had some difficulty in the London scientific community following the recent publication of my paper, with certain retractable elements of the medical establishment objecting to my arguments on the proper uses of science and medicine. As a result, I was grateful for the opportunity of gainful employment, and especially grateful that I will have the time and space here to continue my researches unmolested. F. A. M. Abraham Van Helsing's Journal. 1st March. Later. Since I hoped to hear at least one Dutch voice among the plantation staff, I suppose I should count myself lucky. But Dame Fortune is not overly generous, as there is only one of my countrymen among all those employed here, the balance of them being Frenchmen and more mad Englishmen. In the drawing-room before the evening meal, Francis introduced me to his cousin, the supervisor of the plantation, the self-styled Baron de Maupertuis. With him was the sole Dutchman of the crew, the accountant, Caspar de Vries, and the accountant's clerk, an Englishman in his early twenties, introduced me only as Culverton. The whether this is his given or surname, I cannot say. The Baron is a large man with a barrel chest and a somewhat smug, self-important look plastered to his crude features. De Vries is the perfect model of the accountant, thin, wan, with long and precise fingers that seem always to be in motion. Behind thick glasses, his liquid eyes seem to take inventory of his surroundings at every moment, calculating values and risks. Culverton, the young man, is small and frail, his shoulders and back twisted like someone who had suffered from rickets in childhood, with an oversized head perched on his uneven shoulders, thin blonde hair already beginning to thin. They were a strange lot. The Baron is loud and boisterous in his way as his cousin Francis was in his. De Vries quiet and calculating, Culverton timid and retiring. Dinner was served, a simple but passable fare, 
and the subject of the discussion turned to fortunes of the plantation, such as they were, and better days ahead. This entire region has only recently fallen to Dutch control, and as always the businessmen waste little time in exploiting the region's usefulness. That the Dutch foreign offices were so overtaxed as to hire threadbare Frenchmen with a valueless title as overseer only serves as evidence of the strain the rapid colonial expansion is having on the infrastructure. During the dessert course, Culverton mentioned rumors he'd heard from one of the household servants. The plantation workers, so the rumor went, were nervous. In the fields by day and in their tar-paper shacks by night, they talk of a foul spirit that haunts the area, preying on the flesh of men. It is supposed to be some ancient Sumatran spirit, servitor of the ancient Batak kings, that finds the presence of the Dutch colonial masters to be offensive. The baron joked that if that were true, then they'd only have to feed the spirit de Vries and me, and the rest could work in peace. The laughter, what little laughter followed, was thin and anemic. Abraham Van Helsing's Journal, 2nd March This morning I dined again with the plantation staff, and Francis, whose surname no one last night had the courtesy to utter, invited me to come visit his facility. He explained that the building had been intended for use as a surgery, but that he had devoted a small portion of the space to his researches, continuing the work begun back in England. I wished I had some suitable excuse, some alternative to a day in this virtual stranger's company, but I could not help but feel gratitude for the man for taking me in off the streets, and so, reluctantly, I agreed. On her exit, the baron called after me, his manner blustery. Au revoir, he said with a raucous laugh. Enjoy the house of pain. Once we were outside and on our way to the surgical facilities, I asked Francis what his cousin had meant. His expression distraction, he waved a hand as though to dismiss the matter entirely. Oh, it's just a name given by the plantation workers to my offices, he said. They're a rude and unrefined segment of humanity, if ever there were. We entered the rude building, little more than four walls and a sloped roof, with planks of wood laid directly on the hard-packed dirt for flooring. There was a long, narrow bench along one side, a desk and chair along the back, and an array of surgical equipment hanging from hooks on the wall. Oil lanterns hung from the rafters, which issued tongues of foul black smoke when Francis lit them one by one. Francis made his way to the desk at the rear, and returned holding a sheaf of papers under his arm. I've been doing some researches into the uses of blood transfusions these past months, he explained, growing excited as a child on Christmas morning, and on the inheritance of characteristics. As every educated man knows, Lamarck has been completely contravened. His notion that organisms pass attributes acquired in life to their offspring revealed for the unadulterated poppycock it patently is. But the rejection of a negative does not necessitate a positive, and we are left with the simple question, how do organisms pass inherited traits from one generation to the next? So, you're an adherent to Charles Darwin? I asked, referring to the evolutionary theories published in England only two years ago, which caused some significant controversy among the scientific establishment. I agree in principle with Darwin, I suppose, Francis answered with a dismissive wave, but he is only, in essence, restating the doctrine first put forth by my own famous forebear, Pierre-Louis Moreau de Maupertuis, my grandsire several times removed, who anticipated the evolutionary theories of Darwin by more than a century. Why, in his Système de la Nature, he clearly stated, a commotion at the door saved me what promised to be a lengthy response to such a simple question, but my escape from the litany came at a heavy price. A group of men were bustling through the door, carrying between them a wounded man shrieking in agony. As they arranged their wounded comrade on the narrow bench along the wall, they explained what had happened to Francis in their broken English. The man had gone missing in the night, and when they went out to the tobacco fields in the morning, they found him mauled by some enormous animal. The man was in tremendous pain, and as Francis arranged his medical equipment, I stood at the man's head, his hand in mine, doing what I could to comfort him. Francis began to treat his wounds, deep gashes in his abdomen from which viscous dark blood burbled. Relax, I told the man, in as comforting a tone as I could manage. Mustering my best bedside manner, I uttered soothing words such as, You're in good hands, and We'll put you to right, and further such imprecations of goodwill. Francis. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. On hearing me, laughed. Oh, Abraham, you surprise me. Surely you've come to realize that pain is needless, a residual instinct from man's more animalistic past, and should hold no sway over a rational man. I was shocked. Have some pity, man, I said. This poor devil is suffering. Ah, Francis answered, glancing up from his ministrations. We're on different platforms. You're a materialist. I am not a materialist, I began hotly. In my view, in my view. For it is just this question of pain that parts us. So long as visible or audible pain turns you sick, so long as your own pains drive you, so long as pain underlies your propositions about sin, so long, I tell you, you're an animal, thinking a little less obscurely what an animal feels. The man screamed, insensate in agony, but Francis remained obdurate, merely shrugging. You see, Francis said, like the beasts of the field. Without warning, the crying stopped. I laid a finger against the wounded man's wrist, felt the beating of his life fluttering away, and when it was still, I tenderly lowered the man's arm onto the bench. You've one less beast to worry after in that case, I told Francis, my face flushed red and my hands tightened into fists at my side. He is dead. Just like the others, Francis said, annoyed. He wiped his hands clean on a rag and began to roll down his sleeve. Others? I asked. What others? Oh, Francis answered dismissively. This is not the first, but the sixth to have died of similar wounds in the last week. He shook his head, his expression dark. Damnably disruptive, I have to say. How I'm expected to get any work done under these conditions, I'm sure I don't know. I had little patience for Francis at this stage, and while he returned to his notes and papers at his desk, I made my own post-mortem examination of the man. My initial suspicions were that a tiger had gotten to him, based on the extent and savagery of the wounds, but on closer examination, I found that the bite marks were not consistent with a tiger attack. There are the impressions of incisors, but they are too closely spaced and shallow to be those of a cat. The majority of the injury results from incisors. The man looks more like he'd been gnawed. Leaving Francis to his solitude, I made my slow way back to the main house and my guest room, rambling near the workers' quarters as I went. I've come to learn that the majority of the plantation's laborers are Chinese, with a mix of Javanese, coastal Malay, Tamils brought over from Ceylon, and native Bataks. They bring with them their religions and superstitions, their work huts by native a latter-day Babel, but they all agree on one thing. Something hunts the night, stalking them. Letter to Frederick Learn, October 1st, 1860 Frederick, I was heartened to get your last letter. Your questions are very much in line with my own thinking of the moment. I have begun to suspect that there is in the blood or flesh of the body some element that governs the inheritance of characteristics from one generation to the next. If that be true, 
then it stands to reason that by transposing these minuscule elements from one body to another, supposing that we can overcome the problems attendant with the host body rejecting the introduction of the foreign material, then one might be able to introduce a novel characteristic into the organism. To be frank, I am lucky to find myself in Sumatra at this juncture, for one reason, if no others, is that it is down to the abundant variety of fauna ready to hand. There are an abundance of organisms for my experiment. Birds, butterflies, buffaloes, deer, mouse deer, orangutans, and rodents. Yours, Francis. Abram Van Helsing's Journal. 2nd March, later. Tonight, in the drawing room after the evening meal, I asked whether the Baron was going to intervene in the matter of the attacks, or else appeal to the colonial government for assistance. Well, the Baron said, absently scratching his ample belly, thinking it through. I have no desire to involve the regent of Delhi squatting over in the capital of Medan. He was only some months ago an independent sovereign, and still ill wears the yoke of the Dutch colonial government. You see? For that matter, I've no interest in attracting the attention of his advisor, the assistant resident Max Avalar. The baron paused, taking a long draw on his cigar. Avalar is entirely too soft on the natives, he went on and no doubt would arrive lobbying the Netherlands Sumatra Company to reduce productivity by better treatment of the plantation workers, were we to invite him into our midst. Yes, de Vries offered, uncharacteristically forthcoming. Havilar is one of those who think that the plantations draw too heavily on the labor of their workers, such that their rice crops have materially diminished, and famine has been the result. He had previously been assistant resident in Java, and had been transferred after conflicts with the colonial authorities there. That said, the Baron pointed out impatiently, interrupting de Vries as though he were a constant chatterbox. A hunting party is not a bad idea. How about it? He motioned to de Vries and Culverton, who sat by the side table. Will you come along if I mount an expedition? I cannot, sadly, de Vries answered without a hint of regret. As I am too busy with my tallies. He paused and then added with some kindness. However, Culverton, you may go along if you wish. Your duties this week have been light enough that they could languish a few days in attention. That's two, then, the Baron said, thumping his chest and pointing his cigar at the young Englishman. We'll need a doctor along as well, in the event that someone is injured and needs medical attention. Francis, Seva? Well, I suppose so, but... Francis began, then trailed off. His gaze shifted sheepishly around the room. My researches are in a critical state at the moment, and I don't want to leave them unfinished. The Baron began to sit up straighter in his chair, his face flushing red. Francis, he said, his tone strained. Need I remind you that you are being paid to be our staff physician, and not a general researcher? Perhaps if I were to... If I might, I said, holding up a hand apologetically and interrupting. I'd be happy to take Francis's place on your hunting expedition. If you'd have me. The Baron looked from me to his cousin and back, his expression dark, but then relaxed by inches and settled back in his chair. Very well, he said. So we'll be three. Très bien. We leave tomorrow. And that, apparently, was an end to the discussion. I am hardly excited about a few days' march through the jungle, much less with a timid Englishman and a blustering Frenchman. But in the face of another day spent in the company of this foul Francis, I will persevere. Abraham Van Helsing's Journal, 3rd March This morning we set out, Baron de Maupertuis, Culverton, and myself, along with half a dozen plantation workers brought along as bearers. The jungle tracks and paths are too narrow for horses, and so we are traveling, as the Baron puts it, a pied. I am reminded, uncomfortably, of my journey last month through the wilds of Borneo, lashed by wind and rain, stalked on all sides by fierce creatures. That this morning was presented a truly idyllic scene, sunny and bright, the lush greens of the landscape brushed lightly with dew, did much to quell my nascent fear. Previously, I had seen the tobacco fields only from a distance, but our course to the wilderness beyond took us right through them. As we passed through the rows of plants in their serried ranks, the Baron explained that the tobacco grown here is used as cigar wrappers rather than providing the meat of the cigar itself. 
The plants this week are in their first flush of growth for the season. The season will last for six months, and then after harvest the fields must be used to grow sugarcane for two and a half years, and then left fallow for two years beyond that. This, then, explains why so much of the land around the plantation is fallow fields. At the borderland between the cultivated fields and the forests, we came upon strange tracks the likes of which none of us had ever seen. They were as long as my foot, with phalanges that flared wide, so that the tracks were fanned out like a rake. The baron in the lead, we followed the tracks on into the thick virgin forests and up among the low hills. Near midday, we paused near a swift-moving river, just above a coruscating waterfall. Birds wheeled overhead and a riot of butterflies drifted by like a kaleidoscopic cloud. On the far side of the river, a deer appeared, gently grazing, eyeing us with disinterested eyes black as midnight pits. I sat watching the deer in quiet contemplation, but Culverton jumped to his feet and raised his rifle, eager to shoot. stop! the baron shouted stepping forward and placing his hand on the barrel of the young man's rifle. Yes? Culverton asked, confused and not a little startled. Do you want to be the one to swim to the far side and swim back against this current with the corpse of a deer on your back? Culverton shook his head, his expression sheepish. Besides, the baron went on, the shot could frighten off better sport, the beast we're after. This is one instance, Englishman where the proverbial birds in that bush may be worth more to us than what we already have in hand, Severi? Culverton, cowed, agreed, shouldering his rifle. We continued on deeper into the woods, higher into the foothills. From all sides came slight noises, rustling in the forest's undergrowth around us. Remembering the forests of Sarawak, I grew increasingly nervous and clutched my rifle tighter, my eyes shifting warily from one side of the forest track to the other. The baron, watching alongside, read the tension in my expression and attitude, and laughed. What is it, my friend? he asked. Do you fear the wild man of the forests? Culverton, following close behind, looked at the baron with eyes wide. What is that? the young Englishman asked. The baron puffed up, his manner grandiloquent. Well, he answered, his laughter barely restrained. It is a primitive species of man from primeval times that haunts the woods hereabouts. Culverton shuddered. Those are just stories, surely, he said uneasy. No, I interjecting, finding myself with little patience for jibes and games. It is neither mythical nor man, but rather a species of anthropoid ape called the orang-utan. They are herbivores, Culverton, and quite harmless. This recitation of scientific fact worked on my nerves almost as a mantra is said to function for the fakirs of the East. To apply a taxonomy to the unknown, to bound the noises beyond the sphere of our senses in categorical boxes, went a great distance towards calming my nerves. It reminded me that, but for minor exceptions, we live in a comprehensible world. So it doesn't eat meat? Culverton asked, not letting go of his own misgivings quite so easily. It eats nothing living that is larger than an insect, I should think, I answered. Then Culverton should suit its appetites just fine, the baron said, laughing. Culverton shrank back, and we continued, keeping our silence. Tonight, in a clearing, we rest our weary bones by a crackling fire. We've still had no sign of the strange beast that has attacked the men. Even so, the tracks have persisted, and it is clear that whatever our quarry is, it is large, and makes frequent pilgrimages from the forest deep, high on the hills, down into the fields, and back again. There is disagreement among the men as to whether there is one or more of the creatures, with some saying there is variation in size of the track, and others insisting they are all of the same size. All we've learned is that the animal seems to favor the lowland forests, and likes to stay close to rivers and streams. We have brought bearers along on the trip a half-dozen plantation workers impressed into service on the journey. Earlier tonight, after we ate our rough meal, Culverton and I sat near one another in quiet contemplation. Culverton, for his part, continually glanced nervously at the far side of the clearing, where the workers sat huddled around another fire. Seeing his suspicious glances, I asked why he was so nervous. After all, weren't these men in the company's employ? What would it profit them to turn their hands against their supervisors? Oh, Culverton answered me, voice low. 
there's many a man among them would turn against us in a trice, if they only had the sense to twig how bad off they are. But they are paid, surely? I asked. Culverton explained that they are, but that few of them ever collect. Given unlimited credit at the company store, whether for liquor, euphemistically termed female service, or tobacco, ironically enough, the workers to a man will spend faster than they earn, and if any do make it to the end of the harvest season with any money on hand, management licenses gambling during this brief intermission to milk what little more blood they can from the stones. Any man left owing the company money at the end of his contract is obligated to renew for another three years until his debts are made good. I listened while Culverton explained these practices, and then could contain my reaction no longer. It sounds monstrous, I barked. That's as may be, Culverton said, brightening. But from a management perspective, it's bloody brilliant. Excusing myself, I retired to my tent. I've had enough of these madmen, all of them, and wish I could be home in Holland tomorrow. Abraham Van Helsing's Journal, 6 March Several days now have passed since the 4th of March, but the events of that day are still fresh in my thoughts. Were I not a rational man, I would think myself laboring under some sort of curse. First China, then Borneo, now Sumatra. In each instance I find myself hurled against my will into some sea of madness or another, adrift amongst the impossible. That I have survived all these trials so far, I sometimes fear, perhaps, only suggests that I am being preserved for even greater tests to come. On the morning of the fourth, the second day of our expedition, we continued on. The baron had sent one of the bearers ahead in the night to scout the way before us, and he had not yet returned. The baron, always anticipating the worst from those in his employ, thought that the man had likely fled, trying to escape his debt to the company. The baron swore that when the bearer was recaptured, as such escapees always were, things would not go well for him. Had the bearer, in truth, fled his employment in debts, things could have gone no worse for him than they did. Mid-morning, we found the body of the bearer, or rather, his remains. A few limbs and most of the abdomen were missing, the rest left covered by the strange side-by-side gnaw marks seen on the other victims. There were tracks all around, the same we'd followed from the edge of the field. We followed them deeper into the forest, now more cautious, our rifles always at the ready. We came to a stand of trees ringing a clearing. The trees above, though, were bent over toward one another, creating a sort of naturally occurring arbor, a bower shaded by the domed lattice of trunks and branches overhead. There was a break in the tree line and tracks leading up to it. We all readied our weapons, and with the baron in the lead entered the shady bower. While our eyes adjusted to the darkness, our senses were assaulted with an aroma like the smell of rotten onions or ammonia. The area within the arbor was large, with piles of branches and twigs scattered around. In the gloom we could not see to the far side, with only large shadows lumped on the ground all around us. Which were piles of branches, and which something more sinister, though, we couldn't say. The baron called for a torch to be lit, and one of the bearers rushed in with one. We now stood in a semicircle around the entrance, our backs to the light, our faces to the darkness, with only the flickering light of the torch to guide us. We didn't have long to wait. One of the dark piles erupted and a massive figure lurched forward, baleful eyes glittering in the torchlight. The creature was long and narrow, its head white, a uniform midnight black everywhere else. The long tail was scaly and hairless, and there were black spots on the long face above and below the eyes. On the long, mobile nose was a groove along the underside that ran from the nose's tip to a point between the upper incisors. Its canines were most prominent, two of them pointing downwards like drawn sabers flashing dully in the dim light. We fired into the enormous figure, the Baron, Culverton, and I all together, which seemed barely to slow it. As it lunged forward, we beat a hasty retreat back into the open air, beyond the natural walls of the arbor, but the beast followed close behind. In the open air, we started running, back the way we'd come. By this point, it was every man for himself. On and on we ran, we three Europeans firing behind us as we went, the bearers abandoning their burdens in flight. One of the bearers still carried a trunk across his shoulders, trying to run, his fellows shouting at him in their native language, calling for him to hurry or to drop his load or some such. The beast was on him the next instant, 
taking him up in its massive jaws, the saber teeth doing their work, the pair of them ripping into his flesh. We had a brief respite then as the monster busied himself eating the fallen bearer, but we all knew it would continue after them. We had to press on. Our pace not slackening, we rushed on, side by side along the narrow forest tracks. What? Was that? Culverton asked one syllable at a time, ragged and out of breath, feet pounding on the undergrowth. Its size is ludicrous, I answered as best I could. But in every other respect, it appeared to be a rat. A rat? Culverton responded. Yes, I answered. Of a type. Native. To this region. Nonsense! The Baron shouted from behind, keeping up his steady pace. I don't believe it! Perhaps, I said, calling over my shoulder. You'd prefer to take it up with the giant rat? The Baron kept quiet, and we raced on. Letter to Frederick Lern, December 2nd, 1860 Success! I have successfully transfused the essential generative elements from one animal to another, and when the target subject bred, it produced substantial changes. I introduced specific traits of the Sumatran elephant, genus Elephus, species Maximus, subspecies Sumatrensis, into the moon rat, native to the climb, genus Echinosaurex, species Gymnura. The resultant rat specimens are easily twice the size and weight of their parent, with an attendant increase in strength and resilience. I have chosen the Echinosaurix gymnura because, unlike other specimens available here, these rodents breed throughout the year and typically produce at least two litters per year, with two young per litter being typical. I am working to modify the reproductive rate, though, to see if I can speed the process and introduce even greater degrees of improvement. Yours, Francis. Abraham Van Helsing's Journal 6 March, later we raced on, knowing that the monstrous rat might be on us at any moment. We reached the river we'd passed the day before, just above the waterfall, the water cascading down to jagged rocks below. We are boxed in, the Baron said, leaning over and with his hands on his knees, catching his breath. We must stand and fight. Culverton whimpered, summing up nicely my thoughts on our chances of survival facing the giant beast head-on. No, I countered, recovering my composure. There is a chance. If we ford the river here and cross to the far side, we'll have the river to act as a barrier between us and the monster. But if the rat can't cross this current, what makes you think we can? The Baron snapped. Because, I answered simply, we are men and it is but an animal. I paused, considering the options. You have strong cord among your supplies? We did the Baron answered hotly. But it was left somewhere far behind when the bearers abandoned their duty. One didn't, Culverton said, his voice low. Yes, I said, and he paid for his loyalty with his life. Very well, there is another option. We are now eight, and our outstretched arm span reaches near six feet. The river at this point can't be much more than forty feet across. If we join hands in a human chain, and then enter the water furthest upstream, one at a time, we can use those still on shore as anchors, inching our way to the farther shore. The others were hesitant, but in the silence that followed my last words, we could hear the sound of the monstrous rat crashing through the undergrowth, not far behind. Then they were willing to try anything. I was the first to enter the water. Before we'd begun, we all wrapped firearms in our oilskin jackets and secured them over our shoulders, in the hopes that they'd still fire on the far side. My rifle strapped across my shoulders, I entered the water, the Baron holding my hand. He had to kick hard to keep from being dragged downstream and over the falls, but with the Baron's strength pulling from shore to secure me, I managed to stay in position, my feet just barely touching bottom. I kicked further out as the Baron slipped into the cold mountain water, and then the Baron moved out as the next bearer in line plunged in and so on. I reached the opposite side just as the rat crashed through the trees. The rat paused at the river's edge, and then plunged in with its mouth and forepaws, catching the last bearer in line in its teeth. 
It dragged the screaming man back onto shore, dropped him on the ground, and then turned its attention back to the men still in the water. The Baron and I were by now on dry land, trying to drag the rest of the men out after us. The Baron left me to pull the man in alone, and busied himself with unwrapping and loading his gun. The powder, fortunately, was still dry enough to fire, and without preamble he began shooting at the rat. The rat plunged into the water, following us across the river. It must have been between ten and fifteen feet long, and once its rear legs were in the water, it began to drift downstream. By this point, nearly all of our party were on shore, and with our rifles unencumbered, we began to fire and reload, fire and reload, and with every shot that hit home, the rat thrashed with less strength, red streamers of its monstrous blood pouring downstream and over the falls. Just as the rat was about to reach us, it drifted too far downstream and plunged over the falls, crashing into the jagged rocks down below. When the giant rat had disappeared from view, we all of us collapsed onto the soft loam of the riverbank and breathed deep. It was a long hour before we rose, and longer yet before anyone spoke. We made our slow way back to the plantation, having to divert miles out of our way to find a bridge across the river. We were bone-weary and anxious for a fire in our beds but we had no desire to try to cross the river in that fashion again, and so crossed the long distance in silence. We returned to the plantation and relative safety. None of us has ventured out of doors in the days and hours since, the surviving bearers in their quarters, the staff and I in ours. Letter to Frédéric Lerne, student, care of University of Paris, Sorbonne, March 7, 1861. My most recent experiments have ended, and perhaps not quite on the note I'd have chosen. However, I have gathered the pertinent data, and have come to consider the project a resounding success. I am growing tired of the island life, and am eager to return to England. Well, for all of that, England is still an island, I suppose, isn't it? So I'll just be trading one island for another. But there my experiments will continue, and I will gain the notoriety and acclaim I so richly deserve. Yours very truly, Francis Arnaud Moreau Abram Van Helsing's Journal 8th March I write now from my stateroom on board the Matilda Briggs, bound for Calcutta on the western coast of India. I am only too happy to be continuing my homeward journey, and, as glad as I am to be away from the monstrous creature that haunted the Sumatran forest, I am just as glad to be quit of Francis. I never have recollected his name, though I now remember him more clearly from our school days. I recall him now an awkward and withdrawn youth, who failed to make the connection between his studies of the human body and the individual people who surrounded him at all times, able to obsess in minute detail over the functioning of some gland or minor bone, but unable to evince the slightest interest or concern in his fellow man, seeing them as little more than animals. Perhaps, then, his decision to practice medicine may, in the long run, be to his credit. Perhaps, forced into constant and close contact with the people around him, he will, by turns, become more human himself. In my darker moments, though, I wonder, what if the reverse should happen instead? What indeed! Wasn't that just fabulous? Thanks for the great story, Mr. Roberson. In closing, I'd like to give a shout-out to any horror fans amongst our listeners. Our sister podcast, Tales to Terrify, is having some cash flow problems, because out of the thousands of weekly downloads that it gets, only five people donate to keep it running. As you all know, the District of Wonders is entirely run by volunteers. None of us gets paid for what we do. We just love the stories and love getting them out to you. But, alas, the cold fingers of web-hosting companies don't work with love, only cash. So, if you enjoy what we bring you each week, whether it be science fiction, horror, or fantasy right here on the Triple F, please consider donating a little something to keep us afloat. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license which means you can download the content and share it around all you like, but don't change it and don't sell it. Be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. Now don't forget to write in your journal tonight. You never know when someone might read it aloud and call it fiction. <laughs> <laughs> 
Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.